Welcome to the Phase World Podcast, engaging conversations that cross the boundaries between business, art, and the digital world. Chris Voss is a retired FBI special agent of 24 years who specializes in international hostage negotiation. In 2008, Chris founded a business negotiation consulting firm called the Black Swan Group, which offers services and learning opportunities to anyone who needs to negotiate, persuade, or influence. Personally, I have struggled with negotiation in business for nearly a decade. After reading Chris's book *Never Split the Difference*, I was eager to put him on the show. Everything we've previously been taught about negotiation is wrong. You are not rational. There is no such thing as fair. Compromise is the worst thing you can do. The real art of negotiation lies in mastering the intricacies of no, not yes. Whether you have been told that you are already a good negotiator, or if you find negotiation intimidating and uncomfortable. This episode will help you refine your tactics and break through the barriers. Because first of all, any time the word yes is involved in a conversation, you are in a negotiation. The most dangerous negotiation is one you don't know you're in. You combine empathy with the ability to say no. You get an incredibly powerful negotiator, and that's really where I'm trying to get people to go.、I'm、trying to get them to do both. And if in Ranger School, if he could laugh once during that day, he was going to get through that day. And that's again laughter lightening us up and making us stronger and more resilient. Be playful and courageous with this stuff. You will have so much fun trying this stuff out. Don't take yourself hostage. Have fun with it and bring some great stuff into your life. This is your host Fei Wu, and welcome to another episode of the Fei's World Podcast. Chris Voss and I discussed many interesting questions, such as how does he create a playful and relaxing atmosphere for teaching negotiation? Why is it a bad idea to wait for yes or you're right during a conversation? Do you have a few minutes to chat? Turns out to be a terrible pitch when you're trying to get people's attention and respect their time. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave your comment. On faceworld.com and share this podcast with your family and friends. Your support will always keep us on track and bring many more sung and unsung heroes to this podcast. By the way, if you're using Facebook on a regular basis, you can find us at faceworld.com/faceworld. Without further ado, please welcome Chris Voss. Okay, so Chris, I'm really excited to welcome you to Phase World. I've read so much about you. I am midway through your book, which we'll talk about it certainly as a theme of this podcast. But to introduce you to my audience, you're an adjunct professor at Georgetown University's Business School. You're also、uh, a professor at the business school called Marshall School of Business at University of Southern California, teaching negotiation in the MBA program. You also taught the course International Business Negotiation at Harvard University. And、um, so before this,、uh, you spent 24 years、uh, as the FBI special agent. Uh, as the lead international kidnapping negotiator from 2003 to 2007, and after you retired, you founded the Black Swan Group, which is a negotiation consulting firm. And so, welcome! Wow, what a what an accomplishment! Thank you very much. Yeah, and and my firm also is、uh, is applying hostage negotiation to business. So we we don't do. Um, any sort of hostage negotiation per se anymore. It's all business negotiation. So thank you very much. I'm happy to be on. So I must tell you that initially, when I read your profile, I had somehow assumed that you'll be intimidating to talk to, and、uh, you know you have this wealth of knowledge that many of us, you know, simply do not have access to. But 
after watching your Google video talking about your book, Never Split the Difference, I actually find you very nurturing and very attentive to the audience as well as the interviewer who, if you remember, was clearly well prepared but a bit nervous at the time uh, facing a room full of audience. So, you know, I was wondering how do you design this approach, you know, in teaching your students and creating such atmosphere? Well, yeah, that, that's a great point because I think it's very important. Nurturing is one description. I mean, I'm just and encouraging and positive and, you know, even occasionally playful because I actually, I know, um, I like it for two reasons, what I call the missionary and the mercenary. All right, so the mercenary in me, I like it because it actually makes me smarter and it makes you smarter. Mm -hmm. And we'll both think together better collaboratively if I'm encouraging, if we have fun, if you enjoy this, we'll, uh, it helps me in a strictly mercenary sense, I'll get a better deal. You know, the missionary in me, because yeah, you know, I, I want you to feel better about having interacted with me. I want you to feel better as a human being. I want you to want to do business with me again and look forward to it. So yeah, it's very intentional on my part uh, because it does make me feel good and I like making my counterpart feel good and it's also profitable at the same time. <laughs> Definitely. And one message that you've shared multiple times that really resonated with me is, you know, don't wait for someone to say you're right or try to outsmart the other person, partner or person who's in the negotiation situation with you. And it's interesting that so much of my time spent in business in the past 10 years, by the way, I work in uh, advertising and marketing uh, as a producer, and now since the beginning of this year, I started my own company, Phase World Inc. Um, I noticed that it, now more so than ever with my own business, I really have to embrace your teaching and make sure that I'm not in the room and trying to outsmart everybody or, you know, I, as long as I bring them along with me, I am that much more successful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, for a lot of reasons. Um, you know, they're not going to like it if they feel outsmarted. Mm -hmm. um, they're not going to want to cooperate with you. You know, they're going to feel like if you make them, if you outsmart them, you make them feel stupid. And who wants to do business with someone that makes them feel stupid? And then, you know, I said recently, or I mean, I, I read recently, which somebody wrote, uh, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. Mm -hmm. So you want to be around people that are smarter than you anyway, because how else are you going to learn? So, yeah, you know, and, and that's a, one of the real problems with negotiation, uh, people's negotiation stories. Like when they find out that I help get people better at negotiation, so many people have said, oh, let me tell you about this negotiation. Boy, I had them over a barrel. And I thought, wow, you made an enemy. <laughs> you know, that's that's not good for business long term. You don't stay in business making enemies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of your teaching is counterintuitive, which makes me even more intrigued to listen and to, to actually pay attention to the details. You know, your beliefs um, and what do you recommend? What do you recommend against? One thing that I started kind of giggling a little bit as I'm watching uh, the video. Also the Google one, which I recommend I would certainly make the link very accessible through this podcast as well, is Thank you. <laughs> you use the example. One of my favorites is, do you have a few minutes to talk? Uh. I, I laugh because I say that all the time. You know, whether I, I'm co-calling someone or even when I'm calling a friend uh, casually and you know, and then you basically intrigued my mind to say, how long is a few minutes? You know, you make people think about, first of all, it's never a few minutes. Do right. I even want to talk to you? So could you elaborate on that a little bit more? Yeah, you know, that, and that's a classic one. While what we mean and what is so in, well intended is just so wrong. Mm. Because we're saying that because we're trying to respect the other person and uh, we're, we're trying to demonstrate respect and appreciation for their time. And the opposite is the truth because like every every single question we ask, we're, we're hoping that someone says yes. Yes is co commitment, so they always worry about what they let themselves in for. If they say yes, what's going to happen to me if I say yes? And that's the sort of stuff that clouds people's minds and gets in the way. And do you have a few minutes to talk? You know, breaks down to no less than four questions. And it's, you know, if I have a few minutes, do I want to talk to you? 
And if I have a few minutes and I want to talk to you, do I want to talk about what you want to talk about? And then how long is a few minutes? And we both, you know, everybody knows people that a few minutes is 45. <laughs> so true. And, yeah. And then finally, the last one is how do I get off the phone? Mm -hmm. And you just, you can't think while uh, you can't listen to the other person while all this stuff is going through, through your mind. I, I first saw this a long time ago when someone uh, in hostage negotiation, they were demonstrating what's it like to, to negotiate with a schizophrenic. Who is it? voice going in their head while you're trying to talk to them. And if you plant these sorts of questions in someone's mind while you're talking, then it's the same as talking to a schizophrenic. And it's so common. I was I was sitting with a former colleague from the, the Department of State the other day, and he'd been retired for a long time, and I hadn't seen him since before I started the business. So he goes, yeah, I took a negotiation course. And he said, uh, there are three things you got to do. And the first thing is you got to make sure the other side understands your position. Well, again, that's like talking to a schizophrenic because anytime the other side is more focused on getting you to listen or and what they have to say or what they're worried about, what you're saying is going to let them into, you're wasting your time. Mm -hmm. And so triggering yes in people's minds or trying to trigger yes creates all this noise in their head and it's just so bad. And you just reminded me what I wrote down on the piece of paper as I was listening to one of your podcasts yesterday. You said, understanding does not equal to agreement. Right. I, I never thought of this that way because I noticed exactly as you said, when the other person trying to convince me to make me say yes or make me agree, I'm already turned off, especially when we have different positions with different understandings. But it, it's often very effective uh, you know, mentally, and it's really a lot easier to listen to the person as the person just simply paying attention, trying to understand where you're coming from, even if he or she doesn't agree with you. You know, that's a really great point, too, because it's how we accidentally turn other people off, mm -hmm. how we turn them off from listening to us. And, and then if we turn them off from listening to us, they're never going to uh, collaborate with us. You know, we're never going to reach an agreement. We're never going to reach an understanding where we both want to proceed forward together. So all the little ways that are counterintuitive to turn the other side off is getting out of that. Mm -hmm. In terms of during your teaching, whether it's in the business setting or you know day-to-day -day lives, do you see other common examples or observations for mistakes that people make that are they're not even aware of? Yeah, well, I think you know the, the first two biggest ones is turning the other side off by either trying to get them to say yes or we're hammering them so hard for yes, then the other side is saying, you're right, you're right, you're right. <laughs> you know, and, and we joke about that in my company. We always say that you're right is the equivalent of F you. Only, you know, it's, it's, it's F you, but in a nice way. Like, I love you, but F all. Mm -hmm. um, but I still love you. <laughs> um, and then the other biggest thing is people taking themselves hostage in advance. And they'll take themselves hostage in advance usually by being so determined that if they hear anything other than a yes, they become a hostage to yes, and they 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 don't want to hear anything else. Or what I see a lot is uh, being a hostage of no, and they say, well, they're going to say no to that. That's a non-starter, so we'll never bring it up. And like, if you always knew what the other person was going to say, then you'd have more money than Warren Buffett. So, but we always tell ourselves, oh, I know what they're going to say. I know how they're going to react. They're, you know, this is a non-starter. I hate that more than, I hate that so much because, first of all, you don't know, which means you just left money on the table by not asking. Mm -hmm. And then secondly, all right, so if they say no, let's see how we can take the no to our advantage and we'll feed it into something else. And so, yeah, okay, so they'll say no to this, but we can move on. We, we, you know, we won't burst into flames. No one will burst into flames here. But they become so afraid to find out, they take themselves hostage. And I hate when people won't find out. Mm. So I want to, this is really interesting. I want to dissect people into a couple of groups. So, for instance, men and women share many traits and, and habits. But just wondering, have you noticed any differences between the ways that they negotiate men versus women? Well, and I hate uh, I ha I'll get into it, but I hate it at the same time because mm. I to be you know to use the F word fair, <laughs> you 
you know, I think anytime you start talking about differences uh, or whether somebody's better or worse at something, if you say somebody's better at something that get, leaves the door open to say they're naturally worse. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't think that's fair. Mm -hmm. I think women are socialized more uh, to be more close to be empath empathetic, empathic. Mm -hmm. um, I Actually, women are socialized to be sympathetic, which is not the same thing. And when you're sympathetic, you're highly vulnerable. But it's a much shorter step from being sympathetic to empathetic if you can understand the differences. And the, the basic is, there's a difference between seeing it for, through their eyes or walking in their shoes. If you walk in their shoes, you can feel it, and that's a handicap. But if you can see what they see, it makes you smarter. Mm -hmm. And actually, it's one of the things that sociopaths are fantastic at. Sociopaths are wonderful at empathy. And you know that, that that makes some people freak out. And when I want to start a fight, I'll say, you know, the sociopaths feel empathy. And some people go like, absolutely not. Well, the truth is, they absolutely do because empathy is seeing how you feel. And sociopaths emotions don't get in their own ways, and they pick apart our emotions pretty fast. Mm -hmm. So I think women are so socialized, nurtured to be what is closer to empathy than men are. I think men are nurtured a little more to put up barriers and to say no. So I think when you combine those two things, you combine empathy with the ability to say no, you get an incredibly powerful negotiator. Mm -hmm. And that's really where I'm trying to get people to go. I'm trying to get them to do both. Like if it's it's taking Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton and Paul Ryan and putting all those characteristics together and then you've got a dangerous, capable, wonderful negotiator. I love that. All those parts. <laughs> you know, as, as you mentioned in your teaching, that this process is not linear. It's not how old you are, what what gender are you, you know, sort of to determine what the negotiation tactics are. There, I love the fact that it's it's the truth in many teachings and learnings that there is no shortcut there's no set script to follow um, I I'm so eager to tell you this story because I notice um, part of my own learning through negotiation and before discovering your work and now I'm just even more enthusiastic to kind of dive into your books and your online courses is two years ago I started the podcast without you know, no prior experience, no training in audio engineering, and without a network of people, uh, you know, who are in the tier ones, let's just say, who can help me attract a lot of audience. On top of that, I am a double, you know, sort of a double minority. I'm a woman, I am Asian, and I certainly thought for a while to think that, is it even smart for me to do this? How can I possibly use that to my advantage? So over the course of actually less than two years, and um, we're very proud that we were able to introduce a lot of the guests who we never even dreamed of talking to, including yourself, Chris. So, oh, thank you. So yeah, definitely. Looking back, I certainly had some uh, failures as well, but I, I really agree with uh, your approach in saying, look, negotiation, comes with practice. It's not something, it's not a skill you're obtain uh, overnight. So, and I see someone like you using negotiation almost as a second nature. And for me personally, now I learned to spend less time dwelling on failures, why that didn't work, but simply to move on. So, you know, how do you coach people who isn't, you know, just saying uh, sort of, they have a lot of anxiety uh, because negotiation to people who are new to this field is kind of uncomfortable, unfamiliar. How do you get them to be comfortable? Yeah, you know, that's a great question because the biggest barrier to learning this is not that it's hard to understand, it's that it's uncomfortable, mm -hmm. um, which is kind of crazy because most of this, even though it's very counterintuitive, it's all pretty simple stuff. But it's, since it's counterintuitive, that means it's different, that means it's uncomfortable. And comfort is the biggest barrier, not complexity. There's no, there's no well, there is some Nobel Prize winning <laughs> ideas in here. Because if we start talking about the concept of what loss does to people's perceptions, that actually won the Nobel Prize. And if you can wrap your mind around, and it wasn't my idea, I wish it was, 
Um, Dan, Danny Kahneman, who wrote, wrote this great book called Thinking Fast and Slow, him and his partner Amos Tversky, um, uh, created a prospect theory, which is about what lost, you know, what, how it distorts your perceptions. It distorts our perception of reality so much, we refer to it as bending reality. Mm -hmm. And But you don't have to be a, a Nobel Prize winning scientist to know that uh, a loss things things losses hurt losses have uh, um, over over impact on on how um, distortive impacts on our thinking mm -hmm. and so you, that's not complicated that's just uncomfortable to accept that um, instead of uh, try instead of trying to get people to say yes all the time developing an understanding that's a discomfort level that's not a complexity level so that that is the biggest barrier and the actually the other the once we can get people to start getting better then the next problem is this comes to people so quickly once they get over the the comfort thing getting good at this happens so fast um, we say the learning curve is steep but it's not high that then people don't realize it can go away just as quickly that that absolutely happened to me when I first got trained um, I sort of lost my superpowers over the course of a year and I went in for a review and they told me I was horrible. I couldn't believe it. But I, it came to me so quickly and so naturally once I got it that I didn't feel it going away. And so you have to practice on a regular basis. Yeah, labels especially, labels and mirroring, um, you know, repeating the last three words of what someone just said is a, is a mirror. You know, you, you got to practice that or you forget to do it. Pretty soon, you know, the whole yes things will sneak back into your vernacular and before you know it, you're trying to get people to say yes and that is just horrible. So um, it's, it's practice and being willing to get good at it and actually have fun with it. So, so for instance, if people are listening to this podcast right now, they're thinking, I want to really start practicing today or tomorrow. And so is it possible for someone to create a situation uh, in their daily lives, such as going to Starbucks and ask for a discount or, you know, something more practical than that? Yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, you can, and, and you, you can do it all the time. Because first of all, anytime the word yes is involved in a conversation, you are in a negotiation. The most dangerous negotiation is one you don't know you're in. And on, there's pr everybody on the planet, if you talk to anybody at all, you probably had five conversations today, no less, mm -hmm. and three of those five had to have been negotiations. They had to involve the word yes. So it's even as much as taking a step back, if someone's trying to convince you of something, a great label is to say, it sounds like this is important to you. Mm -hmm. And practice saying that. Not that I'm, I'm giving every, all your listeners the label they could use in almost every conversation. It sounds like this is important to you. And watch to see what, how the other person relaxes. You will see people both simultaneously light up and relax at the same time when you say, "It sounds like this is important to you." And then you, and that's that's a practice. That's that's a label. That's opening up a conversation. Just do that every day and see what happens. And then try to think of other labels to get people to talk and to get them to flesh things out and. You'll find that actually agreement is usually the number two thing people are after. Being understood is usually the number one thing, which means if you understand them, they may agree with you. Mm. I, as I'm listening, I, I am reflecting upon how, again, how I've personally changed in the past two years of interviewing people because I went from feeling very uncomfortable and still very nervous and comfortable at times these days, but more experience and, and know how to calm myself down is, you know, talking to people for an hour at a time, it's oftentimes on subjects I, I really know very little about, such as, you know, medicine and, and such, uh, is I try to open up and I try to be really good listener. And I, just like you said, I do see people will relax and start telling me more about their lives, their choices, and and open up, and that's when the pockets get gets really juicy too. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I think that. I think human beings are hardwired to want to talk, and it's just a matter of giving them a chance, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I'm very surprised. Even people I thought would speak very little, um, I have 
you know, it's interesting. I interviewed a very successful uh, doctor who's female, and her mom contacted me and said, "Wow, I've known my daughter her whole life, and she opened up about these stories I've never even heard of." And I was so surprised to hear that. <laughs> you know,、um, they're very close. Let, let me let me say also, you've got a natural negotiator's voice. Do I? <laughs> you, you do. You you you've actually got that rare voice of both. Uh, a natural downward inflection, which is is very soothing and calming and approachable, but every time you smile, I can tell because I can hear it in your voice. Wow! And that feels good to the listener. Like it make it, we can't see each other,、mm. and when you smile, it makes me want to smile. And and that's those two things together, dynamite. That gets people talking. You made me so happy, Chris. Because originally I really wanted to turn on the camera, but sometimes, depending on the the, the connection, it reduces the quality of、uh, you know the voice recording. I you know love that sort of eye to eye exchange. So、uh, we'll do a little bit of that in in the end because I find your presence also very powerful and I paid attention to the interviews on YouTube that you've conducted that. You are always communicating with your eyes, and when you're talking to people, and when they're talking to you, I feel like you have—they have your full attention, and they're very engaged, even as interviewers. Yes, I well, I try to be attentive, and and yeah, it's because it makes it more enjoyable for both of us, and then who knows what sort of interesting things we're going to discover. If you don't mind, I'm gonna jump around. There's one question I wrote down just before the interview. I realize it's gonna be a little challenging to, to set up. So,、um, a very dear friend of mine, very recently lost, you know, tens of thousands of dollars to a very well curated attack, acted by multiple people, and this was like basically a bank fraud. And、oh. and and it's very unfortunate. And、uh, we're all glad that she's okay. But as I was talking to her, she described these people, who now I realize are very, very good negotiators. And she used words such as she felt almost hypnotized in a way, which we were all very surprised because this woman isn't,、uh, you know, doesn't typically respond to such situations. Very clear-headed for the most part. And I guess my question is. How is it possible to identify these people who are possibly using you know, their skills to harm others, and how to possibly avoid these situations? Right. Well, you know, and this gets us right back to a little bit of a point I was making before, and that sociopaths are so good at this.、Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a, an article that I read recently. Adam Grant wrote, and he's a, he's a brilliant writer. He's, he's a couple books out there that I absolutely love: Originals and Give and Take.、Mm-hmm. And he he wrote a piece called The Dark Side of Emotional Intelligence. You know, and and my book is operationalized emotional intelligence, and it is ridiculously powerful. And you know, I've always joked, and we've always joked. You know, use your powers for good and not evil. And that's only partially joking because you do need to be aware of this,、um, even if you have no in- intention of using tools of influence that are this powerful. Being aware of that to start with、uh, helps inoculate you, if you will. Um, and so it's kind of a two-way street, and there are some bargaining techniques that I always talk about in business school. And I say, look, you don't have to do this, but you have to know it's gonna be done to you. So you need need to at least understand its impact, like high anchoring. You know, somebody coming up with a high price that's intended, designed to knock you off balance emotionally. And for the average to even the above-average negotiator, gives you an advantage to high anchor. With the extremely talented negotiators, high anchoring means nothing,、um, and that triggers a whole separate debate of you know what sort of emotional devices are you trying to use on the other person with what skill. But getting back to your question,、um, I I think of it in terms of just inoculation. Be aware of what can be done to you,、um, and actually, the more and an automatic inoculation you can do is, in order to keep ha- your emotions from being manipulated. Um, focus on the other person's emotions,、mm-hmm. because that actually puts you in a different mindset. It's sort of car- compartmentalizing. You become less vulnerable to the mojo that they're putting on you、mm-hmm. as soon as you th- start thinking about what's driving them.、Uh, 
uh, and I wish I had a scientific explanation of uh, the way the compartmentalization works in our brains. But I know that if I focus very much on what emotion you're feeling in the moment, it automatically turns all of mine down and it reduces my own vulnerabilities. I have to do some research on that because it's what you said is very powerful and made a lot of sense to me. And I, I can't wait to share some of this um, learning and, and findings with my friend as well. Thank you so much, Chris. I really appreciate cool. that. Yeah, cool. Uh, um, so we've learned a lot about negotiation and I would direct people to, again, the courses and the book. I think it's very well curated. Um, and I do want to learn a little bit more about you. I feel like a lot of the podcasts I've listened to focus on your work, but you know, I think we can't ignore the fact that you've chosen, where you chose a very unusual path uh, to become a FBI special agent. Uh, but before that all happened, one of my favorite questions is, what was a 10-year-old Chris like? You know, what, <laughs> what were you passionate about around that age? I, I, I want to find out more. Uh, you know, I think, um, well, I, I grew up in a, um, a middle-class, blue-collar, small-town Midwestern family. And, you know, we were a um, very strong sense of both hard work and, you know, right and wrong from, from the very beginning. I think probably as long as I can remember, you know, we had to, we had to help. We had to work. I worked for my father. He had a business. He was a hardworking, blue-collar guy, very direct, very straightforward. You know, he wanted to teach us work ethic. My mom wanted us to have fun and be kids. And so it was, you know, kind of Midwestern at that time, stay-at-home stay mom, mm -hmm. uh, small-town USA, um, one older sister, two younger, uh, you know, just running around like a little kid, uh, but with parents that were definitely trying to build me with decent values, but not to the ridiculous extent that some people are doing with kids these days where, you know, they got them studying and training. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a... There's a female woman businessman uh, here in Los Angeles. She's got her daughter in chess lessons. Got her daughter playing tennis. She's got her daughter doing extra study. You know, I all I think that does is just make kids annoyed, if not neurotic. And uh, so I, you know, I lived in um, just a, an environment that was, you know, right and wrong. Work hard. Uh, try to get along well with other people. Um, cut the grass, make your bed. <laughs> <laughs> Did you notice that you, you use the word superpower? Did you notice or even use the word superpowers to describe some of the talents and skills that you had at the time? Now, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, because, no, I don't think so. I don't think I was aware of it. I've, I've thought back to this a lot. Like, was there a pivotal moment <laughs> where I knew that I would be a hostage negotiator? <laughs> You know, and I, I don't think so other than I can remember one time in particular I got in trouble, my, you know, and, and I lived in a household where, you know, dad had the belt, which was going to get laid across your backside if you got in trouble. And then, of course, when dad came home, that was what you were scared of. And I remember mom giving me the choice. She's like, all right, look, I can spank you. Your father can spank you. And I thought to myself, well, you know, this is a no-brainer. Ain't no way you can hit as hard as he can. Plus, I don't even think you have a belt. And so I'm like, sure, you know, go ahead. Yeah, you know, you spank me. And she was like, all right, go to the closet and get the yardstick out. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. This changes the equation dramatically. You know, I said, mom, she's a nice, sweet person. She's not supposed to be laying a, a, a stick, of, a hunk of wood across my backside. So. <laughs> I try so I guess, hard to control myself not to laugh. <laughs> <laughs> no, I guess I learned the nurturing person can bring the wood also at the same time. Maybe I learned that then. Mm, interesting. So, so you know, going from an FBI special agent and creating your own company, <laughs> but I feel like your life possibly changed a lot between going from a special agent to creating your company what are some of the areas or uh, you know more significant changes have you noticed well um, as much also 
from leaving law enforcement training to training at uh, first in universities and and then people, I've, I've I've actually learned a lot more about the value of um, encouraging people as opposed to being hard on them. Um, and I've spent a, and you know when when you're teaching cops hostage negotiation, it's a tough audience, and I felt like I had to be tough on them. You know, I had to demonstrate competence, but you know, there's an old saying when you're a cop, if you're confronted with a gang of five or six guys, all you got to do is beat up the biggest one and nobody's going to give you a hard time, <laughs> which is, you know, that's always easier said than done. Mm-hmm. But when I was teaching cops, I would pick out the loudest, most annoying cops in a class. I would watch them before class so I knew who they were. And, you know, the, the smart the smart Alex, you know, the know-it-alls, I'd have them role play in front of me in front of the class the very first thing I did and basically verbally just chop them down to size mm-hmm. and consequently get everybody's attention that way. Um, and you know that I don't like that anymore. If I had to go back and do it again, I would do it differently. I would be much more encouraging. So I think in leaving the FBI and coming out into the private sector, I've really grown more to learn the value of positive uh, encouragement for people and and as you mentioned before you know checking on data now finally we have data that shows that our brain works up to 30 31% more effectively when we're in positive frame of mind so again this is the uh, the missionary in me you know we're both both happier if i make you put you in a positive frame of mind if i joke around with you if in a negotiation if i'm trying to get you to give me something and i say look okay here's my last and final offer I'll throw in my pet frog. Mm -hmm. If that makes you laugh, you're going to be more likely to give me the deal. Mm -hmm. Um, And we'll both enjoy it more, and I'll leave you with a positive residue afterwards so that when I come back, the last thought in your mind was the smile I put on your face when you last saw me. And I think that's been the biggest change since I left the FBI. I'm much more consciously appreciating how much farther that'll that'll get me. I'll I'll give you a quick story. Mm -hmm. I can... uh, I spent a lot of time on the on the street in New York City as an FBI agent in, in the toughest parts of town by myself. And um, you learn to your street persona, which is kind of like uh, you know a, a crocodile persona. Like if you bother with me, you're gonna get bit. And I can and I can put up this vibe, you know this don't screw with me vibe. In that if you take me on, you might win, but. It's, you're going to get hurt in the meantime, and I can put this vibe up. And so now I, I know I when I go through an airport, you know how uh, a busy airport, how likely people are to bump into you. Mm-hmm. So if I put up my "don't screw with me" vibe, no one bumps into me, and everyone gets out of my way, and they get they will get out of my way when they're about three feet away from me. They'll feel this intense dangerous negativity and they'll move now if I go through the same airport with the same crowd and I have a big smile on my face and I'm projecting hey I really like you you know you're a great human being everyone will get out of my way also but sooner and they'll get out of my way when they're about five or six feet away from me which gives me more space but now, instead of glaring back at me, I get a return smile. I get more room. I get more latitude. I can get through the airport quicker. And everyone I encountered was made more positive by the experience as opposed to feeling attacked. So I can do that. And I know that a positive reinforcing attitude is much more powerful and gets me much more you know, than the badass attitude does. You know, I appreciate the fact that you've taken so many extra steps from, you know, you can simply retire, live a comfortable life, but yet you've chosen the opposite of that and making all these learnings, compiling notes and make this knowledge accessible to people in everyday lives and certainly at the business schools that you're teaching at. And I feel like there aren't enough of you doing such things and having your voice out there, you know, in space without people meeting you in person, I feel like it will certainly encourage other people to try to do the same. And, 
you know, I, I've read some articles about negotiation or how to, there's a book called How to Handle Difficult Conversations when I was working consulting. And I was in the near, I, you know, those books I read a, a few pages, I'll put it down, but you know, and now I'm halfway through your book is because I have, uh, not just me, but people knowing who you are will have this tremendous respect for what you had lived through hostage negotiation, working in the darkest valley in New York City, and you've dealt it with real situations that matter. Sometimes it's life or death matter. So uh, there's a different tone and, and voice and tactics that you've uh, brought to the world. That's just, you know, in my opinion. Well, it's, I, you know, it for me, it's fun. It's cool. I, I, I really enjoy helping people do stuff that they didn't think they could do. And like the the first time, I, I was pretty lucky. I got involved in a, in a real deal hostage negotiation fairly soon after I got trained, and it was the most incredible experience. I mean, it was amazing. And so then, whenever we would train a class, you know, there would always be one or two people in that class that would get into something right away, and and we'd tell them, I said, like, you know, you're going to get somebody in this room is going to get into something in the next month. And you are going to go through the experience of a lifetime. You're just going to be, you're going to love it. It's going to be crazy. It's going to be life changing. And every time it would happen, they would call me, and they were still so high on the experience. I could, I could, I could feel it, and and I found it tremendously gratifying. So, yeah, helping people do cool stuff, I get a charge out of that vicariously. I still get a charge out of it. So, if you don't mind, I'm going to go back to one thing you mentioned, which I didn't quite expect is some of the dangerous situations that you've been in uh, even though now you're very relaxed and you know this is your jam and I can imagine just the energy in your classrooms with that said when you were in these tough situations and in your book you had mentioned that you have a skill which is lowering your heart rate kind of back to the normal and calm yourself down uh, what are some of the tips on how to do that because I think I can use a lot of it <laughs> Well, yeah. The crazy thing is, is it's one of two things. It's um, the first thing is the moment I try to focus in on what the other side is feeling. I mean, I'm under control, and I don't know why that works. There's still a lot of stuff that hostage negotiators have known for the last forty years that now scientific data is finally bearing out. I haven't seen any reporting anywhere of scientific data contradicting the experience of hostage negotiators, and so this is one of those. I mean. And to keep our hostage negotiators, keep them under control, we always taught them, like, you know, use the late night FM DJ voice. And that'll keep you under control and it'll calm them down. And then the, if the very first thing I do is to focus on labeling your emotion, and you know, it sounds like this is really important to you, it sounds like this has upset you, there's something about flipping that switch that puts me under control. So the minute I just focus on the external that I'm faced with, my internal goes on autopilot and I'm fine. And the minute that I let my internal distract me off of what I need to be paying attention to around me anyway, then the internal can become overwhelming very, very quickly. And that's just a matter of practice finding out. Um, so then, and, and all the rehearsal that um, Navy SEALs and other people like that do in dealing with stress, it's usually along two or three lines. Um, they're focusing on the internal. One of the things that a uh, 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 guy kidnapped, coached through a kidnapping negotiation of his brother, the way he got himself under control is exactly the same way, one of the ways that SEALs do. And SEALs say to themselves, I could die. This is just a reality. And accepting that it's a reality instead of being afraid of it immediately calms them down. Mm -hmm. Samurai were famous for focusing on death all the time because it was an acceptance of something that they were then no longer afraid of. And in this kidnapping of a, of a brother, and I coached a brother through it, uh, he told me afterwards early on, he just said, you know, my brother could get killed. And I, I didn't hear that from him until a couple years later because he was phenomenal. Mm -hmm. And I said, and I had him come in and speak to my business school class. I said, you were great with the calibrated questions, you got to them so good that you made up a few of your own, which were superstar questions. And he said, well, you know, uh, okay, I'll, I'll take your word for it. He says, and the other thing, I just accepted early on, my brother could die. Mm 
And I was like, wow, if you come and tell my business school that, then that's all they need to know. Because understanding that the worst case scenario could happen and then simply, okay, there's nothing I could do about this, that automatically calms people down. And then the other thing that, that's crazy is um, uh, I was reading at a blog post by Eric Barker just the other day, and, and I'm, I'm an avid fan of Eric Barker's blog. He said uh, he was talking to special forces guys that made it a point of laughing every day in their, in their special forces training. And if in Ranger School, if he could laugh once during that day, he was going to get through that day. And that's, again, laughter lightening us up and making us stronger and more resilient. Somehow, I feel like if my brain is this like little universe, uh, sometimes trying to reflect upon my experience and not being able to make sense of why did that happen or why did I respond to it that way, you reminded me of uh, when I was a very, uh, very avid skater, this in skateboarder. Every day I go out to the training and I have this uh, happy and yet, uh, you know, kind of this, I would also find it kind of scary when I needed to try new tricks. I think all the skaters feel the same way. But if somehow during the training I fall or, you know, I, I kind of land on my wrists or my knees, but I'm okay. After that incident, somehow my trajectory is totally different. I notice, you know what, it's not a big deal. It's not that big of a deal to fall. Once I accept that, I realize I, I treat all the following situations very differently. It's a much lower scale than the, the story that you shared. But it's interesting. No, it's the same. It's a, it's a different scale, but it's exactly the same principle. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. I notice that because of this very significant shift in your career helping directing and people benefiting them directly I wonder what was that transition like exactly what I mean by that is I love what you said in your book many times in life we are our own worst enemy critic or obstacle and same thing with so many people I've talked to I want a blog I want a podcast and at best they have a single blog posts have a single podcast and they give up very easily. You know, do you see that in yourself uh, that you could also be your own obstacle? And if so, how did you convince yourself to say, I'm going to pursue this new path? I'm going to do it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a tough one. That's a, it's, it's us taking ourselves hostage again after, after just one thing where it didn't work out. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I suppose I, I get by it because, you know, it's the mindset of it's going to be okay otherwise anyway um, you know giving yourself a chance to fail I mean I could look at it a lot of different ways um, it's all in what I project to have that I have at stake in the game here you know how how horrific is the failure going to be there's, there's a lot of self-talk as to whether it's fear-based or whether it's abundance-based and you get lucky every now and then to be given enough perspective I mean go spend 10 minutes on a child's cancer ward and you're going to think you're the, the, the luckiest person on the planet. Um, sort of, a, there's a homeless shelter that I've been going to recently where there's a, a thing for the homeless kids on building life skills. And you go talk to some of these kids where you know, they're sleeping on cots in a room that's got 30 people in, it, in a mission and they're only allowed to be there for so long. Or some other kid is living out of a car in South Central LA. Um, you know, sometimes it's getting a, a, an eyeball on somebody else's perspective because we get caught up in our own problems. Our biggest problem is our biggest problem. So I, th I think I've been lucky enough every now and then that the universe has dropped something in my lap where it said, look, you know, stop worrying about your problems. Things could be a lot worse. And anybody that's, I, you know, by definition, anybody in the United States is listening to this is already ahead of the game because we really don't have to get up in the morning and wonder whether or not somebody's going to kill us. It's a likelihood that somebody's, there's going to be an explosion or we're not going to live to 35 because of a lack of sanitary conditions. Um, but sometimes you, you just got to kind of find a way to get out of your own head to see that. And Chris, you had mentioned, uh, we're, we're on a roll here, you had mentioned you know, news you like to read, you had mentioned a, uh, a person, Eric Barker, but you know, I feel like, are there any other people, teachers that you thank for or learn from on a regular basis you like to share with my audience? 
Well, I like Adam Grant's stuff an awful lot. His his book Originals is a phenomenal book. It's thought provoking, um, and and he's a great writer. Uh, so I like Adam Grant's stuff. Uh, Daniel Pink's got good stuff out there. Daniel Goleman's got good stuff out there. Daniel Goleman is credited with coming up with the term emotional intelligence to begin with. And his latest book, I think, is called Focus. And there's actually a chapter in it where he breaks down the three different types of empathy, one of which he calls cognitive empathy, which is what sociopaths do to us on a regular basis. So, um, you know, thought, there are thought-provoking thinkers that are out there. Um, uh, Angela Duckworth, I think, uh, wrote a book called Grit. That's out there. That, that that's that's very good. Um, you know, there are a lot of good thinkers out there. One of the things I like about Eric Barker's blog is that he typically reads all these people and then, then distills it for me. So mm, I love yeah. that. Maybe that that would be a good starting point uh, for yeah, me as well. Eric, uh, Eric's turned me on to a number of other books because he's written pieces about them. So and he's fascinated. His blog is really kind of like how life works. And he's very open-minded, so he reads up on this stuff. And you know, I don't know where he finds the time, but uh, I like I like reading his stuff. It's a it's it's good. He's a good guy too. He's a very good guy. Mm. I I the moment you des- describe Eric Barker, I realized that because you know you had a a very demanding and potentially very stressful life uh, prior, and now you're teaching, you're thinking all the time. Perhaps reading someone like Eric Barker's blog, it's almost, uh, in a sense, it's meditation and relaxation. Do you think? Yeah. 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 No, it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's thought provoking, but not in an exhausting way. It it is very relaxing to read his stuff. That's a good point. Yeah. Awesome. So I can't believe we've. Uh, this one hour went by so quickly and uh, I, I promise to let you return to work in a few minutes, but. Um, is there any question or there questions that you're uh, eager to be asked but I haven't gotten to? No, no, not really. I mean, I just I would just really in, encourage your listeners just to be, you know, be playful and courageous with this stuff. Uh, you will have so much fun trying this stuff out. Don't take yourself hostage. Um, have fun with it and bring some great stuff into your life. Oh, that's wonderful, Chris. And uh, before we close, where do you recommend people to learn more about you, your company, and, and keep in touch? Uh, our, our website, which is blackswanltd.com. Black like the color, swan like the bird with one N, LTD like limited, blackswanltd.com. You can find out about the book. You know, we've got a twice a month newsletter that comes out. It's very digestible with ideas to read. It's complimentary. We got a lot of stuff that uh, the people could use to have fun with and, and to get better at negotiation. Thank you so much, Chris. Do you mind if I turn on the camera real quick? So, oh, you are so wonderful. I really enjoyed this. Yeah, I did too. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah. To learn more about Chris Voss and the Black Swan Group, please visit their website at blackswanltd.com. They also have a monthly newsletter to keep you informed. I have included a link for you to subscribe on faceworld.com. To listen to more episodes of the FaceWorld podcast, please subscribe on iTunes or visit faceworld.com. That is F-E-I-S-W-O-R-L-D, where you can find show notes, links, other tools, and resources. You can also follow me on Twitter at FaceWorld. Until next time, thanks for listening.